The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Hey, very warm welcome to this Friday edition of Squawk Box. You're watching it with Karen Cho, myself, Steve Sedgwick, and these are your headlines. Global markets sitting on edge as they await a speech from the Fed Chair Jerome Powell whilst two officials striking a hawkish tone, telling CNBC they see no case for another rate cut. My sense was we've added accommodation um, right. and it wasn't, it wasn't required in my view. I didn't, didn't think the cut was uh, appropriate necessarily, but I went along with it to get back to neutral. But I'm on hold right now. My forecast is just to hold where we are. Meanwhile, the Great British Pound jumping to its best day in almost three months after Germany's Angela Merkel says Britain could have more time to find an alternative to the Irish backstop. But the French President Emmanuel Macron says the mechanism is indispensable. Italian Prime Minister, Italian President Sergio Mattarella gives political parties five days to ink a coalition deal as the PD sets red lines for a partnership with Five Star, raising the prospect of snap elections. Germany's ThyssenKrupp is reportedly in talks to buy steel trader Klockner in a deal meant to help turn the industrial company around after issuing its fourth profit warning under CEO Guido Kirchhoff's watch. It's a fairly big day for markets as we get set up for a key speech by Jay Powell later in session from Jackson Hole. All investors very much watching the language around interest rates, whether we are very much waged in a mid-cycle adjustment or whether the market is right and there are more rate cuts coming. So investors are listening in for those clues today. So far, the market action yesterday, you could see cautious. It was a mixed session with a pullback for the S&P and the Nasdaq, but gains posted for the likes of the Dow. The gains, two-tenths of a percent, 26,252. It is the fifth session that we've seen gains in about six for the Dow. Boeing having a fairly big impact as that company sets its sights on returning that 737 MAX program to the skies. But uh, elsewhere, if you can see under the undercurrents from markets, financials showing some leadership in session, 0.6% gain. Materials are uh, part of the mix too. And uh, you saw that uh, part of the market actually declining. So investors seeing just a, a fairly choppy trading pattern taking place as investors eye up how much risk they should be putting on the table at this point. Uh, the uh, rest of the markets to take a look at. Treasury is quite key. We saw another inversion in session and that was well and truly noted for the recession watchers the yield on the 10 year 1.64%. The man who uh, was behind the inverted yield curve idea also coming out talking about how much merit there is in watching this type of signaling function for markets across the board. You can st- see still very negative on the 10 year JGBs, uh, the yield on the 10 year bond minus 0.64 and on gilts trading uh, about half of a percent. So slightly out of kilter with some of those negative trades that you're seeing across the rest of Europe. 
Dollar trades, a little bit of a drift in the dollar. What we've got uh, versus the yuan, though, all eyes on the trade. 7.09 in session currently. We have seen the weakest trade since 2008 as yuan has dropped in uh, trading today. This after the central bank set the midpoint range at its weakest level in 11 and a half years, also sparking fresh fears about tensions between the US and China. The other trades, uh, 122.28 on sterling. We've seen a bit of an upward trade. Uh, traction for this trade on hopes that the German comments this week by Angela Merkel about finding a solution to the backstop within 30 days might just be a, a sign of hope. But uh, the trade this one, you can see just a fraction weaker from those levels. Two tenths uh, lower is what we've got uh, in session. Uh, elsewhere on the Asian markets, uh, here's a look. We've got green splashing up across on the boards. Uh, firmer trade for most of these markets, China in particular and Hong Kong, seeing uh, most of that upward push. But uh, keep in mind, a lot of the price action that you may see on markets will be as Asian markets will be shut. The Jay Powell speech that I referenced, G7 Biarritz uh, over the weekend. So we may see even more movement uh, in reaction to the news play come Monday morning for the Asian markets. But when it comes to the time frame for European markets, this will be an interesting one. Uh, there's such a high risk event around what the Fed says today. And most of the news flow will be crossing very late session, about an hour before the close for many of the European markets. So it could be staggered towards the, the second half of the session where you see much of the movement. But already we are perched high across the board. Curious fact about uh, the European markets with all of that political noise around Italy. It's actually been one of the best performing markets in Europe this week so far. It has been up about 2.4% for the week. Underperforming the trade that you've seen across most of the core as well has been the UK market uh, only up a fraction. So we'll look for some of the, those uh, green arrows to materialise when we pop open for trade this morning. But in the meantime, good morning. Nice to see you. Which Welcome begs back. the question as well, does all of this noise we're hearing and seeing around the world and geopolitical tensions uh, from Korea and Japan and US trade tensions across the Pacific and Europe, and you just mentioned all those issues graphically, does that mean you buy or sell equities? Does one buy or sell equities? Well, the message that seems to be coming through is that you have some risk, but you also have some very safe assets in the portfolio like cash mm. so or gold. It's, it's a real barbell approach that seems to be jumping up from a lot of the fund managers. But again, gold, as much as I can see its merits, does not have any income. So I just had a very quick look at the income, given the fact that that's a large part of your wall just there. The income that one can get from the bond market is, quite frankly, pathetic. And we know about the trillions of dollars of negative yielding assets, which you've graphically illustrated there. If I said to you the cash Caron yields 3.4%. I personally found that quite surprising, as indeed does the Zetradax. The Nikkei, where you get zip for your holding your JGBs, gives you a 2.2% yield on your stocks in terms of dividends as well. Uh, and the FTSE 100, we know there are questions about some of the yield payers, but 4.8% as well. And also, I just did a further bit of work on the buybacks, but as an aside to this as well, from uh, Howard Silverblatt uh, over at S&P Global, he says that the second quarter dividends are, are going to be some of the record levels ever at an average 14.24 for the S&P 500. So there's a real reason. I'm not saying that you should buy equities. Absolutely not saying that. I don't do that. But real reason why people would be buying them in this current environment. Which begs the question, is more central bank stimulus warranted at this point? Because if we're going to see even lower moves in some of the yields, isn't it going to push more investors into that same sort of arithmetic, looking for returns wherever they're getting it. It's going to be on the equity side of the portfolio, mm. some form of a long trade. And if you think about the defence of the bond proxies, most market managers are saying that they are overpriced at this point. So we, do we really want to fuel any further excess in this part of the market? 
That is the great question, and one we will find out perhaps from the likes of Fed Chair Jerome Powell, who is set to address the Jackson Hole Symposium today. FOMC minutes released this week showed members were divided over a decision to lower rates by a quarter percentage point. But policymakers agreed that the move should not be seen as a signal that rates are on a preset course. Now, speaking to CNBC, the Kansas City Fed President Esther George and the Philly Fed President Patrick Harker said they don't see the case for additional cuts. My sense was we've added accommodation um, right. and it wasn't, it wasn't required in my view. With this very low unemployment rate, with wages rising, with the inflation rate staying close to the Fed's target, I think we're in a good place relative to the mandates that we're asked to achieve. I didn't think the cut was uh, appropriate necessarily, but I went along with it to get back to neutral. But I'm on hold right now. My forecast is just to hold where we are for exact one of the reasons is that, that I think we, we run the risk of creating too much leverage in the economy. That was interesting, wasn't it? Get back to neutral. I didn't know we'd gone past neutral. Did you? No. Uh, meanwhile, the Dallas Fed President Robert Kaplan told CNBC he'd like to steer clear of further cuts, but would remain open-minded. Part of this job is to be forward-looking, and there's a risk management part of the job. And uh, I, I want to take all the time between now and September to assess how the economy's uh, acting. And I'd like to avoid having to take further action, but I think I'm going to have an open mind about taking action uh, uh, over the, at least the next number of months if we need to. And for me, the global, the, the global yields, but particularly the U.S. yield curve, I'm less obsessed with whether the two to 10 and the movements back and forth. I'm more focused on the fact the whole curve has moved down over the last three and a half months. And the Fed funds rate at two to two and a quarter is now above every rate along the curve, which to me is a little bit of a reality check that says it's possible our, our uh, monetary policy setting is a little tighter than I would have thought three or four months ago. Funnily enough, the curve should look a little bit like that mountain behind Kaplan. It should be going steeper, but it's just not. And that's the problem. Let's just take a look at uh, what the, the markets are watching right now. That yield on the uh, two-year note, uh, currently 1.63% is what we're looking at, 1.63 on the 10 years. So it's flat, but there was another inversion in session. And at the same time, we had Arturo Estrella, who was the man who created that inverted yield curve idea. He said it's impossible to be 100% sure about the future, but he said, I'd say the chances of recession in the second half of next year are pretty high. And with that in mind, the Fed has to decide whether to move off the, the sidelines again. Michael Hessel with us, political economy analyst at Absolute Strategy Research. So all eyes swivel back to Jackson Hole today for clues from Jay Powell. Is there a case that the Fed chair is going to spell out for more than just a mid-cycle adjustment, but genuine rate cuts? Well, I think, you know, I think there could be a change of language maybe at the very margin. But fundamentally, you know, looking at the policymakers that have just spoken, I think the, you know, Powell is going to find it increasingly difficult to push back against market expectations for, for aggressive uh, rate cuts. I mean, you only have to look at, you know, retail sales are still strong, the unemployment's at record lows, um, you know, equity markets where, are where they are. You know, I think it's hard to make the case when the Fed is still in waiting for evidence mode uh, that, you know, that, that, that they can go for the full, full, full shebang.
There's a couple of dissenters, though, and that's one of the, the sticking points for investors when they're saying, will we get 50 basis point rate reduction come September? Will we get more cuts this year? Because you've got a number of members who didn't think there should have been that first rate cut. We've seen a situation a little bit like this before where the Fed chair has had to try and talk to both sides and pull them together and, and form some form of a consensus view on rates. How tricky a situation is that for Jay Powell? Fairly new at the job in that top role. I mean, you know, I, I mean, clearly he's kind of still relatively untested in these in these uh, circumstances. Uh, but you know, I come back to this this uh, this issue, which is that you know the consensus fundamentally. Uh, you know, we've had some clarity over the reaction function, and it's still ultimately in kind of wait and see mode. You know, it doesn't seem like uh, you can get enough of those uh, hawks uh, on side to to make the case to markets at least that we've got an aggressive rate cycle coming. When do we go to the stage where economic cycles were? Um were negotiable. Ne- economic cycles happen. They've happened for 10,000 years. They happened uh, during the Industrial Revolution. They happened during Roman times now. Why are we trying to do something that has never been done historically and deny the fact that we have economic oscillation and meandering? It happens. Why can't central banks accept that? Is it because they've become too politicised? I mean, I think, you know, uh, you know Jay Powell has been, you know, may- admirably good at uh, maybe kind of batting off some of the politicization or the pressure that's come from Trump. But I think ultimately the reason why they're trying to keep the show on the road or they might try and keep the show on the road now is because looking down uh, you know, on a two to three year view, sure. it looks like fiscal policy is going to become increasingly dominant over monetary policy. Mm. And that really speaks to... Uh, sorry. But no, 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 Michael, carry on. Uh, I mean, I, you know, I think you know, if you look at every recession for the last 50 years or whatever, mm. the US uh, Fed has cut by at least 400 basis points. Sure. Right, um, they cannot do that this time, you know, barring some inc- incredibly unconventional policies. And I think, and I think, there's a, bro- a broader point of unconventional policy more generally, which is actually some of the unintended consequences are starting to dominate it over the un- intended. It's consequences. very interesting you talk about unintended consequences. It's something that many observers, um, famously the chairman of UBS, to Jeff in Davos a couple of years ago, said these could become greater problems than the cure for the patient at the moment of lower interest rates and easier money as well. What are as far as you're concerned, those real dangers from easier monetary policy? Well, I think, I think they're probably clearer in Europe at the moment, you know, where we've seen you know, the hit to uh, profitability of the banks in particular. Uh, but you know, it, I think just more generally, you know, uh, you know, there, are certain, uh, there are certain asset allocation uh, perversities that might, that might have come about, you know, more money flowing into illiquid assets, the search for yield, uh, you know, generating some, some risks uh, in, in the economy uh, more fundamentally. I want to get into the inverted yield curve just a little bit more because I thought it was stunning that we had these comments out from the economists who first discovered the predictive power of the yield curve. And that's timed with the White House on the weekend suggesting, well, we didn't really have an inversion. It's a flat yield curve. Nothing really to see here. To have the man who actually created say, well, I'm pretty sure that we're going to have a recession in the foreseeable future. Are we missing a trick? Is the inverted yield curve doing exactly what it was designed to do? Flash up a warning signal when nobody was even looking at this signal and missing it because, let's face it, we've got growth in the States, 2.1% clocked up in the last uh, quarter. We've got a little bit of inflation as well. Are we missing something? Is the yield curve doing its function? Well, I mean, in terms of uh, recession indicator, I mean, I think, you know, my bosses have always uh, drilled into me that, you know, one chart is never enough. And at ASR, we look at a range of, uh, you know, possible recession uh, signals. And they are showing that the risks are in- increasing. Uh, you know, I mean, y- certainly there, there does seem to have been uh, a lot of focus on, on the yield curve. And actually, uh, this, the uh, Senior uh, Loan Officers Lending Survey actually asked 
uh, asked people how they would respond to a, an inverted yield curve, and they said they could actually tighten credit conditions. So there could be this kind of behavioural aspect where it starts to have kind of self-fulfilling uh, dynamics. Um, but yeah, I, I, you know, it's, uh, it's just one, one indicator as, as, as far as we're concerned, and we, we track several. Michael Hessel, thank you very much. A political economy analyst at Absolute Strategy Research, and we will continue our coverage from Jackson Hole later today when we speak to more Fed presidents as well as IMF Chief Economist Gita Kopinath and Bank of England Governor Mark Carney. Uh, the economist who first detected the link between the yield curve inversion and recession has backed his theory and, yeah, funny that, he's backed his own theory, uh, and warned a downturn could hit sooner than expected. Uh, Karen was mentioning that story earlier. Head online for the full story. Plus, ahead, uh, Germany's Angela Merkel backtracks on her backstop deadline in a boost to the pound. Uh, details next. Plus, if you can't get enough of Squawkbox, uh, be sure to tune in to our very own podcast. Head to cnbc.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And have a listen and download today's episode. And for our listeners, uh, stick around for more. A CNBC signature event. East Tech West. CNBC's exclusive invitation-only retreat returns to Nanshao, Guangzhou, China in 2019. We explore all things tech from artificial intelligence to 5G. Join the world's most prolific investors, inventors and entrepreneurs as they share their stories and celebrate innovation. Visit EastTechWest.com for an application to attend. I will hold new consultations next Tuesday to make my conclusions and to assume the necessary decisions. This crisis must be solved with a clear and prompt decision. This is something that the government of a great country like ours requires. It is also necessary for the role that Italy will have in new institutions of the EU for the next five years. And it is also necessary for the economic and political uncertainties at the international level. That was Italian President Sergio Mattarella laying out why the country's bickering parties should come to a deal over the next five days and end the political crisis. However, talks are touch and go with the opposition PD party raising the stakes for a coalition with Five Star by adding three more conditions to the five it had already tallied up. Willem is back from Rome where he's been stationed all week and he's here to talk us through the latest. Willem, good morning. Karen, thanks so much. So the conditions are, of course, a key part of these negotiations. We've heard some of those conditions already from the Partido Democratico going into this week. That was back a couple of days ago. And then essentially after this day of consultations with Sergio Mattarella, they've come out and laid down three further ones. And these are going to be quite difficult for the two parties to find common ground on. They're things like the idea that they have to repeal some of the laws we've seen under this current government on security and migration, a hugely hot button issue for Italy. Talking about the idea of the plan to cut lawmakers down by around 345, they'd like to see that plan revised. One of the other conditions from Zingaretti, the man that leads uh, the Partido Democratico, is that Mr. Conte cannot remain as prime minister. And I just want to draw your attention to some of the numbers here inside both of the Italian uh, parliamentary chambers. This is the Senate, the upper house. You've got five star there with the lion's share, 107 votes. If they were to team up with the Partito Democratico here in red at 51, you end up with 158. It's a little bit shy of a majority, so they would need help from some of these smaller parties down here. 
but that's going to be a very difficult majority to maintain in terms of stability. If I walk you over to the lower chamber here, the Chamber of Deputies, you can see that it's a slightly more comfortable combination as a margin. You've got five star at 216, PD at 111, add those up, you get 327 comfortable majority out of 630. But the problem with Italian politics, as Sergio Mattarella will know only too well, is that members of these parties sometimes peel away. And what was a stable majority can end up looking very shaky indeed, guys. Yeah, amazing. And none of the time you and I will talk about this as well, because I think Zingaretti versus Renzi is a big enough battle, let alone what Zingaretti does to reinvigorate the PD. Uh, and going to government with Firestar, it just doesn't seem right to me. Anyway, we'll talk about this because there's so many nuances. Thanks, Willem. Uh, meanwhile, the pound rallied towards its uh, best day in more than three months after the German Chancellor Angela Merkel suggested Britain could have until October 31st to find an alternative to the Irish backstop. On Wednesday, Merkel told British Prime Minister Boris Johnson that the UK could have just a month to resolve the issue. However, in comments made Thursday, Merkel clarified her point was intended to highlight the urgency of the situation. <coughs> the comments come after French President Emmanuel Macron appeared to take a tougher stance on backstop. Uh, on the backstop, following talks with Mr Johnson in Paris. Il n'appartient à aucun pays. It isn't up to one country from the EU on its own to negotiate or renegotiate that agreement. But I will say that key elements, such as the Irish backstop, are not just technical constraints or legal quibbling, but are genuine, indispensable guarantees to preserve stability in Ireland, the integrity of the single market, which is the foundation of the European project. And this is an integral part of this agreement. I just want to repeat one crucial thing. Under no circumstances will the UK uh, be putting checks at the, at the frontier. And uh, we don't think it's necessary from the point of view of the EU to, to do that to protect the integrity of the, of the single market. We think there are other ways of doing that. Uh, we've got, I think, adequate time to do it. Let's get on and do it. Georgina Wright, this goes around in circles. Good morning to you, Senior Researcher Institute for Government. I know it's horribly early. Thanks for joining us. Um, look, look, I, I read the, the front page of The Times today. New hope for Johnson, as Macron says, deal is possible. Then I read my read there. Tougher stance coming from Macron as well. Everyone's reading what they want to read into this, aren't they? I mean, it's obviously really difficult to know what's going to happen. And yes, the 31st of October is, is quite soon, but it's also not soon enough. So it's very difficult to see how both sides are going to move. I think France have always held a very tough stance. Um, and Macron was very firm yesterday. He said, you know, if you want to have uh, an alternative, that's fine, but you must put forward proposals. And also you must make sure... Alternative arrangements, technological things, uh, customs away from the border. There's loads of other proposals available, aren't there? Well, we don't know what those proposals are. We know that the government is confident that they can come up with those proposals, but mm. the devil will be in the detail. But from the EU's perspective, um, their line has been consistent. One, these alternatives need to protect the single market and they need to maintain the border open as soon as possible. Now, that's going to be something that's very difficult to do in the very short time. Norway, Switzerland, other countries have got alternative arrangements? Uh, well, no, they're different kinds of arrangements. But they've got seamless borders, Georgina. Well, those are not kind of the suitable, the ones that the UK is looking for. And that's because the UK government has said that the UK will be leaving the single market and customs union. And so trying to square that circle becomes very difficult when you share a deal. We were promised. I, I remember going back, or talking to you perhaps in 2016, June 2016, we were promised the great reform bill, you know, getting all this legislation onto the UK statute. We were promised Brexit and we were promised a trade deal by now. In fact, by earlier this year as well. This has been an absolute pig's ear, hasn't it? 
I mean, it is funny because we were having sort of similar conversations, it's true, about two or three years ago. But I think, you know, the complexity is is that, is that Brexit is complicated. It is a technical process, it is a legal process, but it's also a political process. And, you know, the, the question really is how can you find a deal that's acceptable to Brussels that would also make it pass here in the UK Parliament? And we haven't been able to solve that solution yet. Michael, the whole way along, it felt as though conversations were put in a box about what you could negotiate at what particular time. And when it comes to where we stand today, Boris Johnson's been trying to say, well, let's try and look at the, the problem from a different angle and perhaps we can solve it, come up with something more creative. Now we seem to be wedged into this window of 30 days. Should we just step out of that, that um, idea? It doesn't have to be 30 days it's gone on for long enough we've moved the deadline already if there is now a dialogue taking place to, to renegotiate and come up with a different solution it doesn't have to happen in 30 days does it yeah i mean i think the whole 30 days thing was a bit of optimistic reporting on the part of the british british press i mean i've covered a number of uh, uh, eurozone or eu standoffs in my relatively short career you know all of them have taken roughly the similar kind of template but one lesson is you can always pretty much extend you can always kick the can down the road so you know i think for for, for us it seems like uh, parliament is at the heart of the gridlock and until you get a new election uh, and and you know maybe some more fluidity uh, then you're not going to really see anything fundamentally change. Um, what about Prime Minister Ken Clark, Prime Minister Jeremy Corbyn, um, a coalition of interest between the soft Tories and the this more centrist Labour? Any of these scenarios actually going to happen? Well, this is the other kind of key ingredient to what's going to happen next. So we have obviously those negotiations with the EU and in Brussels, but then you've also um, got to wait and see what happens when MPs come back from their holiday. They come back beginning well, of September. Well, the rest of us been sorting stuff out, hasn't it? Well, I mean, some of them obviously. I, I think that. I'm sure they've all been thinking about it um, and it's probably a good thing that they've taken some time off but actually um, what they do when they come back how they position themselves whether they put a vote of no confidence down whether they wait to see how negotiations with Brussels work I mean all of that remains to be seen and I think it's too early to judge what will happen Am I wrong? I, I always thought there'd be a general election this autumn Am I wrong? Um, who knows? I mean I, I'm not one to take a bet on this particularly not okay. on air so um, we shall see you, you, I mean, when will the general election be? It's not 2022, that's for sure, is it? Well, when you read um, sort of what political analysts are saying, they they suspect that it could happen before the end of the year. But again, it all depends. At the moment, this government is in place and it doesn't have to go. Wow. And you're loving this story still, by the way. We said it as an aside off camera. I said, oh, are you fed up with all this? No, you're loving it, aren't you? I mean... I, I'm just really interested yeah. um, in this topic and it and it's such an opportunity and an actually to be able to work on it closely. So um, yeah. I will be watching with anticipation <laughs> what happens next. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.